more than enough. It comes out of the book of Joel. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in uh, the book of Joel this evening, what is considered one of the minor prophets. And uh, this prophecy is trying to teach the people that God is all that they need. And it's, it's done in a rather unique way in the way that this book uh, it comes about. And, and tonight the title of the lesson is When, when Gladness Dries Up. And we're going to be looking at uh, how to be able to get through uh, difficulties as God speaks to these people about what they are going through in terms uh, of their calamity. Now, uh, the, the prophecy of Joel begins in a, in a pretty jarring way. If you have your Bibles, you will notice that we aren't given an introduction. We aren't given dates. We aren't told who's the king on the throne. We aren't given a time frame. There's not a warm up. It just goes. The prophecy of Joel, here we go. And, and so it makes it a little bit difficult to know, um, well, when was this? Uh, when, when was this, this, this message given? And so uh, scholars will argue that maybe it was in the 800s and it was one of the earliest. And some will say, no, it was one of the, the later ones around the 600s near the destruction of Jerusalem and still others will say it was after they returned from the exile. But the lack of information, the lack of keys, the lack of kings, the lack of time frame uh, tells us that this is really intended to be a timeless message. And it's probably why scholars are able to say this book fits in the 800s, the 600s and the 400s is because it was a message that was intended to be timeless to the people of God. And it was intended to be able to help them see God in the time of their calamity. And a little bit of an overview of the book before we get into the first chapter, I think, uh, would be useful because the way God speaks in this prophecy is, is fairly unique that chapter one describes the calamity and the day of the Lord and the difficulties that they have experienced in the past. And then you start into chapter two and he starts talking about, but there's another one coming. And then when you get to the end of chapter two and move into chapter three, he starts talking about even another one after that is coming. And so you kind of have a past a near future and a far future that Joel is prophesying about events that are going to take place. And, and sometimes when we, when we think about the, the, the books of the, or called the minor prophets, we can wonder, well, what is the relevance? Why look at these kinds of things? And of course, it's the word of God. And of course, you know, this prophecy is quoted by the Apostle Peter in his first sermon. And so you have that New Testament relevance. But one of the things that I really want us to zero in on on this this four week study that we're going to begin with on the Sunday nights is, is just to look at God's going to explain what he's doing in our troubles. He's going to explain what we should be doing in our troubles and then he's going to talk about how we can have hope in those troubles. And so this book really is a timeless message about when calamity strikes, when gladness dries up and joy is gone. What is God doing and what should we be doing and what is the hope that God has in store for us? So that sets the table for what we're going to be looking at as we go through this book, as well as what we're going to look at this evening in the in the first chapter of the book of Joel. You will notice in Joel chapter 1 and in verse 2 that that you have the the prophecy beginning by describing that 
the people have gone through an unprecedented calamity. You'll notice in verse 2, hear this, you elders, give ear, O inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell it to your children and let the children tell their children and let their children to tell another generation. And the thing that kind of made me smile in reading this and talking about uh, this prophecy about, you know, there's nothing like this has ever happened. And so, you know, you could ask uh, ancestors in the past, it's never happened. And you're going to tell future generations about that. And I smile about that because, of course, it seems like everything in the news right now is unprecedented. You know, everything is brand new and fresh and has never happened before. And we're going to tell future generations all about it. And that's that's what they're going through right now. That Their news lines are saying this is unprecedented. This is Never happened before and is going to be a memorable moment that is going to be kept for all time in their history books. And you'll notice that what we are told about this is pretty devastating. In verse 4, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locusts have eaten. There. They have had one of the worst locust attacks that they could ever remember. And that's why the question is asked. Can you ask your, your forefathers about anything like this? Nothing has been this devastating for them before. And they have ultimately lost everything. And I want us just to even think about how difficult that would be to have such a loss of economy that every plant, all the fields, everything is completely ruined. In fact, the imagery of the severity is really zeroed in in verse six when it says that a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth and it has fangs like a lioness and it laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree and is stripped off their bark and thrown it down and their branches are made white. The, the severity of the attack of the locusts is so bad that it can be described like a nation coming in like a roaring lion and with fangs and teeth and just wiping out everything. And ultimately, the imagery is that there is nothing left. You'll notice that it's stated again in verse 10. The fields are destroyed and the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, and the oil languishes. There is just nothing left in terms of food, in terms of prosperity, in terms of farming. It is a complete economic wipeout. And it's stated again in verse 12. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And notice it at the end of verse 12. It's where we get the title of tonight's lesson. And gladness dries up from the children of man. I want you to think about twice that the point is made that the vine and the fig tree have been destroyed and then are dried up. And that is something that we see used not only as an actuality, but it is even an important symbol to God's people. You might remember in the, the best of times for Israel when Solomon was on the throne and he was following God and received the wisdom of God. We're, we're told that everyone sat under their own vine and their own fig tree in 1 Kings 4 verse 25. 
And of course, you know, people weren't outside actually sitting under a fig tree and a vine. It's symbolic to indicate that God was making the people prosperous and blessing them. So imagine what God is saying now when all the vines and all the fig trees are ruined. Here is God taking his blessings back from them and saying, because you have been unfaithful, I'm taking my blessings away. And that is why this locust attack has occurred. And I want you to notice that it's even stated in quite a way in verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 1 reads, The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord, and the priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. And what is interesting to think about is because the grain is gone and the wine is gone and all of this is gone, the people are unable to worship God. That God has essentially shut down their worship. Because can they offer sacrifices? No. And you might think, well, well, what about the animals? They might be able to still use the animals. Well, you'll notice when you move over toward the end of, of the chapter, and in verse 19, it describes that the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned, and all the trees of the field, and even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks have dried up, and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. If there's no pastures and there's no feeding ground for the animals, how's it going to go for all of your animals? So there's nothing left. It's the end of their economy. And God is making a note and saying, you see, I've cut off your worship. Uh, and he calls for them in verse 9 to, for the priests to mourn and the ministers of the Lord to cry out because he has shut down their offerings. They're unable to worship the way that God wants them to with their sacrifices because all those things have been taken away. And it's a great summary in verse 12 just to simply say that gladness is dried up. There's no joy. No one's happy. You have a whole set of people who are languishing. And who are going through pain and they're going through suffering and they're going through loss and they're looking around and saying, well, what are we going to do now? Because we've lost everything. And so the big question is, as you come out of verse 12, so what are the people supposed to do? What is supposed to be their response when their joy has evaporated and their gladness is gone? And I want you to notice three things that God teaches here about what he calls for the people to do in their difficulty. And these will be the three messages that we will look at tonight for ourselves when our gladness dries up. Verse 13. Verse 13, we read, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the, in the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. I want you to notice the first thing that God now says that the people need to do in the midst of this calamity and when joy has been taken away and gladness has dried up is he calls for them to look up to God. 
You'll notice he begins in verse 13 by telling the religious leaders, the priests and the ministers at the altar, that they need to put on sackcloth and wail and cry out to God. But not only should they be leading the way, you'll notice in verse 14, he says, there needs to be a solemn assembly and let's have a fast together and gather the elders and not only the elders, but all the inhabitants of the land, bring them all together at this place and they need to come to the house of the Lord. You see that at the end of verse 14, gather them all, all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord, your God, to cry out to the Lord. First response, he says, Get everybody to come to that temple. Everybody needs to come to God's house and they need to worship and they need to cry out to God. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Why, why would God say that? Why would it be so important to tell not only the religious leaders, but also the inhabitants of the land, your first response needs to be to cry out to God, to look up toward God. And I want you to think about that. One of the most important things that you see the people of God throughout this time frame failing to do was acknowledging God's sovereignty over these events. That they were supposed to take a step back and realize that God was at work and it is because of their false actions and their sins that these things were ultimately happening. And so here he's saying, you need to come to the temple, come to the house of the Lord, and you need to call out to God so that you will acknowledge that God is ruler over the universe. He is sovereign over what is going on in the world. Now, I thought about that for a minute. And I thought, I'll do a little bit of research because I know what we would probably do is like a terrible locust attack happened like this. What we would do is one of two things. We would say either that was really bad luck or we would have a scientific explanation for that. And I thought, well, what's the scientific explanation for a locust attack? Because I had no idea. So I thought, hey, Google's a great place. Let's, let's go check that out. Locust attack. Typically, scientifically, we're saying likely to happen after heavy rains and tropical uh, cyclones have come through with a booming of plant growth. There also appears to be that locusts have this chemical attraction that causes them to act as a swarm. And so what we would do is we would measure all that and we would go, well, it was really wet. and There were some cyclones and the, the locusts got stirred up. And that's the reason why this happened. And that is kind of how the people operated back then. Listen to what Hosea said about it. Hosea prophesies and says, and speaking of Israel, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for their bale. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Notice God comes along and says, they didn't realize it was me giving it to them and they didn't realize it was me taking it away from them. And this is what's happening in Joel's day is here is God coming in and he's trying to get them to understand that when difficulty comes, you need to look up. You need to pay attention to God in those moments that those are key times when things get hard, that God wants us to look to him and see what he's doing ultimately in the world. And that's one of the things that the scriptures are constantly pointing to is that God uses difficulties 
calamities, trials, and hardships to get our eyes to look up. You could look, go to the book of James, how it starts. Count it all joy when you fall into trials. Why? Because it's testing your faith so that you will be producing perseverance and all the other various aspects of the, the fruit of the Spirit. Or First Peter 1 does the same thing in talking about the genuineness of your faith is being refined in the difficulty. God is always using these physical things to get us to look upward so that we would pay attention to him. And so that's why he is using this here in Joel chapter one. These, this calamity has happened on the people. It is an unprecedented event in, in, in their day and time. And it was supposed to cause the people to look up toward God. Now, I hope that you are catching a little bit of irony here. So I made the point that you have the field, it's gone. The trees are, have been destroyed. The plants are all gone. And so the fig trees, the vine, the oil, the wine, everything is completely ruined so that the people can no longer offer their sacrifices. And God says, the priests need to mourn and wail and put on sackcloth because the sacrifices are gone. And yet, what is he asking for the people to do, even though the sacrifices are gone? To go and worship. To go to the house of the Lord and worship God. I think there is a great irony in that because God's message is not, well, you've gone through this unprecedented calamity. You need to stay home and figure out what you're going to do with because all your crops are gone. Or what are you going to do because you've lost all of your animals? No, what he tells them to do is that they need to go and worship God. They need to pay attention to him all the more in the time of calamity. We have such a tendency in our lives. That when life gets hard, we stop praying, or we stop worshiping, or we stop assembling, we stop caring about the things of God, and we kind of fall into our lives and we go, well, I've got to take care of myself because I've got all these bad things going on. And the very thing that God is saying is, no, in the time of your calamity, that's when you need to look up all the more. That's when you need to press into God all the more. Don't allow the hardship to keep you from getting closer to God, to keep you from worshiping. But instead, the loss is supposed to move us all the closer to God. And so this is, is God's message as he begins in verses 13 and 14, calling for them to go to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Second, notice verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes joy and gladness from the house of our God? I want you to notice that he says not only do you need to look up in the time of calamity, but I want you also to look forward. And what God says here in verse 15, if you would just Try to put yourself in that day and time and hear these words. They must have been chilling, terrifying, awful words to hear. You have just gone through a calamity. This locust attack has wiped out everything. And yet verse 15 says, woe for the day. The day of the Lord is near. And I think I would have raised my hand if I were in the audience when Joel said that. And I would say, near? It just happened. 
What do you mean near? There can't be a near. We've just gone through the worst. We've just gone through this unprecedented locust attack that's never been before that we're going to tell you our children about. You just said to tell everybody about what's just happened. What do you mean? Woe for the day that there is going to be a day of the Lord that's coming when we've just gone through this. But I hope one of the things that might be coming to your mind in this is that the scriptures are repeatedly showing that calamities are often used as a warning for the potential of future judgments. We are just coming to the conclusion of our book of Revelation study in our Sunday morning Bible class. And you might note how many times you read about God with those fractions you remember. And we talked about these partial judgments that were intended to get the people to repent. And the unfortunate line that keeps happening throughout the book of Revelation is, but the people did not repent. They curse God all the more rather than turning back. And because of that, then they experienced a full judgment. And the same idea is being presented here is that judgment can be a precursor for future judgments that not only is God using calamities to try to get our eyes upward, but he's warning us of the potential of future judgments to come. To state this another way, it would be to say it like this is that our physical difficulties are supposed to get us to think spiritually before it's too late. Now, Sometimes we can read things like this and think, well, that might just only be an Old Testament idea and you don't see it anywhere in the New Testament. But let me show you where Jesus uses the same, the same argument. Luke chapter 13 and in verse 1, here Luke tells us there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, that's Jesus, he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in that way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then notice in verse four, he doubles down or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were any worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It is interesting to see that what God does is he says, I will allow there to be calamities and difficulties. And it can mean that there is a precursor for future judgments if we don't repent. And here's Jesus making that point. You can imagine people are like, oh, yeah, those Galileans are really bad. And that's why that happened. And Jesus is like, well, wait a minute. Uh, That's actually a warning for a future day of the Lord to come. And that's what's happening here in Joel 1 and verse 15. After this disaster happens on the land, Joel comes in and goes, now you understand. There is a future day of the Lord that is coming that you need to prepare yourselves for. And friends, I don't think we would have any trouble in being able to quickly point out that we have a nation that needs to repent. That we have a nation that needs to turn its eyes upward and be all the more aware 
of the difficulties that are going on so that we would pay attention to God all the more and cause us to turn our lives back to him before it's too late. And so often that's not what we do. We come up with other explanations for why things are happening rather than seeing God as sovereign and using the things that happen in this world and the things that happen in our lives to double check our spirituality and to pay attention that there are certainly more that could be on the way, which leads then to a very important third point. I want you to notice in the final verses After talking about how the animals are groaning in verses 17 and 18, listen to what Joel says in verse 19. He says there, to you, O Lord, I call. And I think this is really important to see. Is that after Joel is proclaiming about what has just transpired and how the people need to look up. And they need to be spiritually aware that there may be another day of the Lord that is coming. And woe to that time if it does. He then turns around and says, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead the way and I am going to call out to, to the Lord. And so you see him doing that in verse 19. Even though the fire has devoured the wilderness and the flame has burned all the trees in the field and the wild beasts of the field are panting for you. He says there in verse 19, I'm going to call out to you. And friends, this is so important for us to think about. Is that in the time of calamity, in the time of distress, and in the time of difficulty, we need to be a people who continue in our faith so that we can lead the way toward God. That we can lead people in the way in prayer and lead people in the way in worship and in repentance and in faith. That we can be such a pivotal part of people's lives in the world that when devastating times come we show them that God is enough for us that we turn to him in prayer and we continue to be strong in our faith and we look inwardly and correct anything in our lives that we see that needs to be changed we need to be the ones who are leading the way in that and I want you just to think about different ways that you are able to lead the way in the different relationships that you have in your life. What can you do to lead the way in terms of faith when it comes to your family, when gladness dries up? What can you do to lead the way in terms of this this family right here when difficulties strike? How can we lead the way In faith, what can we do to lead the way and teach when it comes to our friends or our co-workers or the community that we live in? The big question about leading the way is trying to be ready to answer this question. How will we respond when gladness dries up? I think when when we're young, we think that day will never happen. We're young, we're impervious, it's always going to be good days, sunshine, rainbows, unicorns. We're going to, you know, everything that we have planned in our life will all come to to fruition and we will have exactly everything that we think that we're going to have. And then life happens. 
And God gives us trials and hardships. And the question is, how will we respond when our joy is gone? What will we do when there's nothing left but pain and confusion? Because that's where these people were right here at this moment. With everything gone, now God is coming to them and saying, now will you look up now? And will you look forward now? And will you lead the way in faith in terms that will show others that God is enough in your life? And I want you to think about that you probably know people in your life somewhere in time, either presently or in the past, who you have watched them go through terrible, terrible difficulties. And you've watched them live through severe trials that were years and years and years. And you're able to see their faith in the difficulty and how they didn't give up on God and how they kept their eyes up and how they were using it to help others and teach others and push people forward in their faith and come alongside of them in an encouraging way. You know what a great benefit that is when you have seen people do that in the past. And the lesson is simply this. Now it's our turn. Now it's our turn to do the same. It's our turn to lead the way, to come alongside people in their difficulty because we have maintained our faith throughout our calamity and our difficulty. That God will give us the strength to get us through when gladness dries up. You have to love the Apostle Paul saying that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The strength that we need to get through calamity is not within ourselves, but it is that we get our eyes up and we pay attention to what God is doing. And then we lead the way faithfully teaching and helping others in that process. Let's go to God to prayer this evening. Our Heavenly Father. Lord, it can feel. It can feel absolutely crushing. The various distresses and pain and difficulties that we can face. And Lord, I pray that when we are in our lowest moments and we are in our darkest times, that you, Lord, you would remind us to get our eyes up to you and help us to see that you are sovereign over this world that there is nothing outside of your sight, outside of your knowledge, or outside of your control. And Lord, I pray that when we are weakened in faith because of the calamity that we face, you will help us to see that all we need is you, and that you are there to give us the strength that we need. Lord, help us when our hands are drooping and our hearts are weary and help us to push forward, not only in being faithful to you, but Lord, help us to push forward in leading with an example of faithfulness. 
Help us to use our difficulty so that we can help others, so that we can teach others, so that we can be ready for whatever new trial may come, whatever disaster may happen next, that we are ready to have our eyes up and to come alongside each other and help each other see our need for faith and for prayer and for worship. And that ultimately all we need is you. God, I pray that you would forgive us for when we have tried to look outside of what you have to offer us. Forgive us for when we think you are not enough. Forgive us for when we haven't turned our eyes upward, when we haven't depended upon you. And Lord, I pray that you'd just impress upon our hearts all the more that all we need is you and that you will carry us through our difficulties and through our pains. We pray this through your son, our savior, Jesus, and amen. We'll sing an invitation song tonight. We invite you to take an opportunity to think about your life and where you stand with God and how God may be at work in your life through your trials and through your difficulties. And that God could be using these things to to move you toward him, that you would draw closer to him all the more, rather than turning away from him. Do not let Satan win by turning your faith away from God when life gets hard. Turn your eyes up, look forward, and help others do the same as well. Can we help you in any way tonight? We'd love to do so once you come while we stand and while we sing.